Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. The COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in thousands of patients developing critical illness and requiring admission to the intensive care unit. Amongst these critically ill COVID-19 patients, the most common organ failure has been respiratory failure. However, a large proportion have developed acute renal failure. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss acute kidney injury in the context of COVID-19. We are extremely fortunate and honored to have Dr. Claudio Ronco as our guest. Dr. Ronco is a world-class thought leader in all matters related to acute kidney injury and renal critical care. He is a professor of nephrology at the University of Padua. Dr. Ronco is also director of the Department of Nephrology, Dialysis and Transplantation, and director of the International Renal Research Institute at San Bartolo Hospital in Vicenza, Italy. He's an extremely accomplished clinician, researcher, and educator with truly an impressive number of peer-reviewed publications. Dr. Ronco is also a champion for the FOM community, free open access medical education, and host a wonderful YouTube channel, Cappuccino with Claudio Ronco. Claudio, welcome to Critical Matters. Hello, how are you everyone? So I think that as we, we dive into the topic of acute kidney injury and COVID-19, I thought that maybe a good starting point would be just to talk a little bit about acute kidney injury in critical Ill patients outside of the context of COVID-19 and maybe start by definitions of AKI, which I think have been something that you have been championing and working diligently around the world for many years now. Well, uh, yes, I think, uh, first of all, you cannot uh, cure what you don't know and you don't know what you cannot define. So definition is extremely important. We have learned that uh, uh, depending on definition, the incidence of AKI may be very different and therefore we need a definition which uh, take us uh, to a different dimension <clears throat> and help us in terms of uh, uh, possibility to use uh, definition in clinical practice, to use it for trials, to use it for quality assurance. So today, um, after a long uh, series of discussion uh, where uh, the diagnosis of AKI <clears throat> was basically uh, based on uh, signs and symptoms uh, for almost two centuries, uh, it was called the disorder of Lerina glands. Uh, after Second World War, uh, uh, after the London bombing, when the studies on autopsy showed patchy necrosis uh, in the kidneys of patients uh, uh, dying for, uh, for uh, acute rhabdomyolysis. The term used was acute tubular necrosis, and this was considered uh, um, a kind of uh, uh, equating the term acute renal failure, which is an abrupt reduction in kidney function uh, as demonstrated by an increase in serum creatinine and decrease in GFR and urine output. However, after many different definitions uh, around the, the, the world and in the literature, we have finally come to a point in which uh, we can now study better epidemiology of AKI because we have uh, a, a, a common definition that uh, started uh, from a process called ADKI, Acute Dialysis Quality Initiative, here in Vicenza in 2002, and then uh, evolved into what today people know as KDGO guidelines. So the definition today is a definition based on uh, uh, serum creatinine and, uh, um, and uh, urine output. And uh, we define AKI as one, any one of the following three stages. Stage one, which is basically characterized by a, an increase in serum creatinine 
more than 0.3 milligram per deciliter in the uh, let's say within 48 hours are the uh, stage two is when uh, uh, serocreatinine tend to double the concentration and finally uh, stage three when this is uh, uh, tripling uh, creatinine now we have also included our aspects related to definition which is uh, the possibility for example of an increase in serum creatinine of more than 0.5 milligram per deciliter within seven days uh, that characterize also AKI. And finally, urine output uh, is basically uh, considered uh, significant when it decreases uh, uh, to less than 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour for at least six hours, stage one, or for 12 hours, and this is stage two, or for uh, 24 hours or more, uh, uh, and this is stage three. So we have uh, this uh, concept now, definition that allowed us to define prevalence and incidence of AKI in uh, community areas, in hospitals, in ICU areas. And uh, there is a common uh, agreement that AKI uh, at different stages has a significant impact on uh, outcomes, and these outcomes are extremely uh, uh, clear today. I think that simply they can be summarized as uh, uh, hospital length of stay, uh, ICU length of stay, mortality, cost in general, and uh, uh, other uh, complications which we call uh, MERS, which is uh, major adverse cardiovascular and renal uh, and renal uh, adverse events. So basically, uh, I think it's important to know that moving from non-AKI to stage one, two, and three, we have uh, a progression of the of the severity of disease, but we also have uh, a, a progressive increase of the risk for uh, uh, worse outcomes. And uh, the other thing is that uh, um, we know today that uh, AKI at different stages, it's a, a, a marker of severity of disease, but it's also an independent uh, 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 risk factor for mortality. And the progression of uh, <clears throat> these uh, uh, outcomes uh, related to the progression of, uh, of uh, uh, AKI stage is the demonstration of, uh, of this. And Dr. Ronco, I think that uh, the point of uh, an independent risk marker uh, for bad outcomes and also the point you, you made is very clear that as you progress from no AKI to stage one, to stage two, to stage three, your outcomes get worse, I think is an important reminder for our clinicians not to trivialize some of the iatrogenic damage that sometimes we produce in ICUs to the kidney and recognize that we have to be very conscientious of what we're doing because there might be an increased risk just by taking that patient into AKI or worsening their stage in AKI. And I think that's something very important. Yeah, and uh, even more than that, uh, we not only uh, should not uh, uh, consider negligible, even small increase in serum creatinine, but uh, we should also consider uh, the possibility actually to prevent today uh, the occurrence of AKI, even at mild stages, by using early biomarkers, for example, that allow us to detect conditions in which the kidney is under stress in which we have specific exposures that may be iatrogenic, may be uh, contrast media, may be uh, other comorbidities like uh, sepsis, for example, or congestive heart failure, uh, together with the fact that uh, 
uh, we might have a, a kidney that is highly susceptible because it already went through an episode of AKI, what we call a kidney attack in the past, or because it already has a decrease in the functioning nephron mass, may have a decrease in renal functional reserve, or even have a decrease in baseline GFR showing an incipient form of chronic kidney disease. So, and this explain, in fact, why the incidence of AKI is higher in areas like ICUs, uh, like uh, uh, cancer departments, or like uh, uh, cardio, cardiac surgery, because uh, most of the patients that are operated uh, are uh, with the, with the uh, high susceptible kidney, they are high-risk patients, and in these areas, we have uh, um, probably a high probability of exposures. And I, and I think, it, can you expand a little bit, uh, Claudio, on the, the current availability of biomarkers that are utilized clinically at the bedside? Yes, um, we actually have conducted the a long, uh, uh, we have conducted a long battle to make clear that uh, if we have an increase uh, in uh, um, in serum creatinine, this is already a failure, uh, and this is already representing a, a a situation in which AKI is uh, clearly uh, occurring. We need to possibly uh, identify patient uh, in the early uh, phase uh, when uh, uh, our patients are in the gray zone where we can still uh, impact their outcome by modifying our uh, process of uh, diagnosis and care. Uh, we have biomarkers that have been known for years, like NGAL, like cystatin C. Uh, we have uh, LFAB, we have NAG. But today we have uh, this new generation of biomarkers called cell cycle arrest biomarkers that are basically molecules that are expressed uh, um, in, uh, in the kidney when the kidney is under stress and they have a very high negative predicted value. So the when negative, they are really negative, they predict no AKI. And on the other side, when they are positive, they have also highly predicted value within 12 to 24 hours to, uh, for the patient to develop uh, um, AKI mild to severe. So this uh, type of uh, um, this type of biomarkers are of course more costly than uh, uh, creatinine, but uh, they uh, have shown in our hands at least to um, to to make us saving a lot of money in terms of uh, need of renal replacement therapy and uh, need of. Uh, um, um, also uh, uh, other uh, measure or simply AKI reducing uh, uh, the, the number of days in the, in, the, um, in the hospital. So I think that the cost of these biomarkers can be uh, somehow uh, um, be overcome by the fact that they allow to save some money. And it sounds that obviously used in a in a rational way for high risk patients, it makes a lot more sense, right? Not maybe to everybody you're seeing, but directed at the high risk patients can prevent complications. And like you said, if you can save a patient from requiring renal replacement therapy, I'm sure it will pay for the cost of the biomarkers in in space. Yeah, and. Uh... There is, of course, a continuous uh, debate uh, whether these require more evidence. Uh, I think that there is now a large uh, number of papers showing that, uh, first of all, there is this uh, uh, capability to predict AKI, and there is also a utility in the possibility to trigger specific bundles of actions 
that uh, are maybe very simple, like the, the KDGO bundles for prevention of AKI, that we all think we are applying anyway, but this is not the case. We have, uh, did, we have done a study, Alex Zarbok has done a study, and it was clearly shown that when you trigger a bundle of action with the, uh, an early biomarker, uh, then the incidence of AKI decrease and the need of renal replacement therapy decrease. Excellent. Well, I think this is a great uh, introduction to, to the topic of AKI and COVID-19. And maybe we could start, uh, Claudio, by just sharing with us. I know that um, obviously uh, Italy was at the forefront and now the, the epicenter has moved to the United States and, and South America, but tremendous experience has been a, a, achieved over the last several months and weeks with this new disease but maybe start by telling us a little bit about the prevalence of AKI in COVID-19 and what do we know at this point? Well we are in these days uh, uh, working on, uh, on, uh, on a, uh, a consensus conference uh, with people from all over the world to try to uh, exactly analyze what is the incidence and prevalence of AKI in patients uh, with COVID-19. The reason for this uh, uncertainty is because we're not sure about the denominator. Uh, when you speak about the percent of patients developing AKI, some people speak about the entire community, some people speak about uh, hospitalized patients, and the criteria for hospitalization may be different. And some people speak about a uh, uh, percent of patients in the ICU. So I think that uh, we can speak for us. Uh, we uh, have seen uh, basically something like 10% uh, of the overall patients uh, resulting positive at the swab test being hospitalized. And uh, of this approximately, uh, 10, 20% uh, uh, entering ICU. In the ICU, we have seen developing uh, AKI in approximately 30 to 40% of the patients, all stages, while approximately 20% have uh, requirement of renal replacement therapy. So, so these obviously, with the numbers that we've seen in ICUs of patients, are big numbers in terms of uh, requirement of further support for renal dysfunction as well. I mean, I think that, um, I, I don't know exactly what happened in Italy, but just uh, from some of our programs in New York City, the need for dialysis machines, the need for dialysis catheters was something that they had, had never experienced. So clearly not, not a, a trivial problem. And in terms of pathophysiology, Claudio, why do patients with COVID-19 develop AKI? Well, uh, I would like first to, to say that uh, already on February 6, we published in Lancet uh, a, a paper saying uh, coronavirus epidemic preparing for extracorporeal organ support in intensive care. And we recommended to alert uh, the intensive care units uh, that a tsunami was coming and the need for renal replacement therapy and the demand would have been uh, greater than ever. I'm surprised that in areas like New York, uh, they experienced a shortage of devices and supplies because uh, we, for example, did not do that. This may have to do with the characteristic of the system before the COVID-19. And I think this is very important because it, uh, it shows whether or not you are uh, you are prepared for uh, for an emergency, and uh, this, in fact, is a, a, a situation that should be considered. <clears throat> Absolutely. Now, uh, we have uh, uh, we have uh, um, we have uh, um, uh, looked at the at the uh, type of the disease uh, that uh, uh, COVID-19 patient experienced, and uh, and we were astonished by the characteristics. And uh, in the most recent publication in Lancet of last week, uh, we clarified very well that the infection may lead to a completely asymptomatic 
situation may lead to mild symptoms that may or may not convert into more severe symptoms. Some patients uh, uh, got a very sudden uh, uh, problem of pulmonary exchanges and had to be uh, hospitalized immediately and intubated. Some patients remain with mild symptoms uh, for a long time. Now, some patients come to the hospital uh, uh, with the pneumonia, and these patients have a, a, a typical triad. They have pneumonia, they have an hypercoagulability state, and they have a high increase in cytokine production uh, uh, that has been defined as cytokine storm. All these three conditions may lead to progressive endothelial dysfunction, to progressive myocardial dysfunction, to endothelial damage and uh, infarction or mycotrombi in the kidney, together with the fact that recently has been identified a possibility that uh, uh, the virus circulates in the in the blood and reach uh, the kidney, causing endothelial damage, podocyte localization, proximal tubular localization, mitochondrial dysfunction, and finally acute tubular necrosis. And there is one more mechanism that has been invoked is the fact that uh, some of patients have a gastrointestinal syndrome and they tend to be admitted to the hospital hypovolemic and dehydrated. And this may cause a further uh, uh, chance to develop AKI. Once they have a AKI, uh, uh, the increase in, uh, in uh, um, fluid uh, retention may cause hypervolemia. Uh, on the other hand, the mechanical ventilation and eventually the use of ECMO may cause uh, extra kidney damage. So this implies a vicious circle that actually affects very much uh, uh, kidney and lung function. Endothelial dysfunction uh, provides a syndrome like a capillary leak syndrome and uh, myocardial dysfunction uh, may cause arterial underfilling or venous congestion. And in this case, AKI develops and the patient uh, may actually require uh, renal, replacement, uh, renal replacement therapy. And in terms of, uh, of recognizing AKI in COVID-19, I presume that you would be applying the same uh, KDIGO criteria that you would apply to any critically ill patient. Is that correct? Is there anything particular that you would want to mention? Well, uh, this COVID-19 population was uh, exceptionally um, carefully uh, monitored and studied. You know, biomarkers are mostly used uh, in uh, moments of uncertainty. Uh, practically in patients where the risk is very low, there is no point to use a biomarker because they will never develop AKI. Patients who are severely ill, uh, there's no point to use the biomarker because very likely they develop uh, AKI, so there is no need to predict raining when it is already raining. Uh, the area where biomarkers are useful are the area of uh, uncertainty. And several of these patients, uh, uh, let's say, uh, displayed a clear uh, AKI quite early, but others uh, displayed AKI after one or two weeks of uh, ICU stay. In those patients, the use of biomarker was quite useful in identifying when they started to develop a stressed kidney and a condition probably based on uh, hyperinflammation, hypercoagulable state, and filtration of damps from the glomerular basement membrane reaching the tubular level, uh, that uh, may actually lead to AKI. So certainly in these patients, uh, uh, using KDIGO criteria to diagnose uh, and classify AKI and using biomarkers to early detect signs uh, of, uh, by, of kidney stress uh, allowed us to, to, to be extremely prepared uh, in these patients. And um, Claudio, I would assume that the impact of AKI on outcomes in COVID-19 is similar story to in general ICU patients, right? 
Yes, although we are studying because I must say that uh, most of the patients who developed AKI had uh, a kidney recovery. Uh, very few patients left the ICU with need of dialysis and therefore it seems that uh, AKI is a very transient symptom uh, <coughs> syndrome. However, <coughs> It is clear that uh, when you have patients uh, that start to have uh, AKI, this is a sign of a multiple organ involvement in the syndrome, and this increases the level of severity of uh, of these patients. Okay, so so maybe we can start by uh, talking about a little bit of treatment, and uh, I know that you uh, you mentioned kind of the, the general treatment bundle bundle that KDIGO uh, recommends for acute kidney injury, which I think is obviously a great starting point. And as you mentioned, even though people usually say, oh, we do all these things when we look with more attention, and especially in a situation like COVID-19, where there's a large number of patients coming in, there might be opportunity for us doing it a little bit better. Yeah, well, for sure, the, the so-called uh, um, KDGO bundle is a way to uh, make sure that you're not increasing the level of uh, uh, of uh, insult to the kidney. So I think that uh, this is extremely important because it describes very well that a simple uh, series of measures such as avoiding nephrotoxin, uh, monitoring adequate fluid balance in the patient, uh, uh, being able to control uh, uh, blood pressure and, and others uh, represent the <clears throat> possibility to uh, optimize uh, the condition of the patient, avoiding progression of AKI in case of mild stages or development of AKI in, uh, in uh, some stages. Um, this, however, uh, represents uh, a, a, one of the different possibilities uh, uh, for patients uh, who are at risk or are developing mild AKI. But uh, uh, then we have to deal with patients uh, that uh, uh, are at specific risk for AKI in case of COVID-19, especially when, for example, they are developing a a cytokine release syndrome. So <clears throat> while you want to absolutely avoid nephrotoxin, possibly avoid uh, uh, contrast media, antibiotics, uh, or other drugs that are known as uh, nephrotoxic, while you want to avoid uh, hyperhydration or dehydration, keeping the patient in the right window of hydration, which is probably optimal, while you want to make hemodynamic monitoring to make sure that uh, you have adequate organ perfusion and you want to monitor renal function possibly by uh, urine output and by uh, of course uh, uh, gfr measurement or creatinine measurement i think that uh, you have to be ready to consider those conditions that represent a true risk for uh, patients with COVID-19 to develop AKI. And these are the hypercoagulable state, uh, which may require actually treatment uh, uh, with uh, low molecular weight heparin or systemic anticoagulation. Patients who are at a high level of cytokine release uh, uh, levels, so they may actually require immunomodulatory uh, uh, treatment although it has not been yet validated, but uh, something like tucilizumab or anti-interleukin-6 uh, uh, drugs er, or other uh, anti-inflammatory drugs like anti-malaric drugs and so on, uh, seems, to be, seems to be an important aspect. Uh, there is a third option that should be considered in this phase and it is the use of all these techniques that have been described as extracorporeal organ support therapy that can be applied before there is organ dysfunction but they can be used to remove cytokines from the circulation and i'm namely 
mentioning uh, uh, hemoperfusion with specific cartridges that absorb endotoxin or uh, cytokines. Um, <clears throat> Uh, other uh, filters with membranes that uh, are characteristically absorbing cytokines on their surface, or membranes with specific cutoff values that allow clearance of uh, cytokines uh, uh, through the pores of the membrane itself. All these therapies should be considered, and we wrote that in our Lancet paper, uh, in special cases, in patients in which there is no response to any other therapy, there is high risk of developing multiple organ failure due to the hyperinflammation state and should be considered also in uh, the context of uh, uh, randomized clinical trials so where we can probably get uh, the level of evidence we are searching for. Absolutely. So, Dr. Ronco, before we, we dive into a little bit more in terms of renal replacement therapy, uh, you did, I mean, mention a lot in terms of general approaches to treatment and potential treatments for specific situations within COVID-19. There, there, there are two things I wanted to ask you if you could dive in a little bit deeper. One is, uh, step one, obviously, is avoiding nephrotoxins. Are there any specific drugs that are being utilized for um, COVID-19, either experimentally or as uh, under emergency uses, that we should consider uh, altering or, or, or monitoring differently when the patient has AKI, and specifically hydrochloroquine, you mentioned the antimalarials, you met, uh, some of the antivirals like remdesivir can be excreted by the kidney. Any specific comments you can make on those drugs that are being utilized within the context of COVID-19 that might, have an, a, by, might be impacted by acute kidney injury? Well, you know, uh, drugs in general are a double-edged sword and uh, uh, we should uh, certainly use when there are indications, but we must be aware, for example, the antimalaric drugs, they have a certain degree of nephrotoxicity. So uh, we must be aware that there is a possibility to induce uh, a damage at the tubular level or at the interstitial level in the kidney. And this should be uh, bear in mind also when we use uh, immunomodulating agents uh, like tucidizumab or others uh, because uh, these kidneys are particularly susceptible. Absolutely. And the second question I, I wanted to, to, to touch, we, we did talk about, but I think it's an important point to reemphasize is um, fluid management and trying to keep the patients at the adequate intravascular volume obviously is a, is a lot harder than it sounds. But I do believe that a lot of these patients with COVID-19 are usually sick for several days at home, might have GI losses, might have um, increased losses from insensible losses, from fever, and increased re uh, respiratory rates. Yet early on, I think a lot of people, especially in emergency departments, have been very aggressive with diuresing these patients, thinking of the respiratory status. And maybe in some of these patients early on, we need to give them a little bit more attention in terms of their intravascular volume, recognizing that later on, maybe we change that. Any comments on that? Absolutely. In the early phases, uh, these patients tend to be more dehydrated than overhydrated. So we have to be careful and forcing diuresis may not be the right solution. Uh, plus, uh, uh, we know that uh, uh, diuretics do not uh, uh, preserve the kidney from AKI, nor they affect uh, the outcome of AKI. It is clear that it's more easy to treat a patient that is non-oliguric versus a patient that is oliguric. However, we should be careful because this patient needs to be optimized in terms of fluid administration. Now, some patients, uh, uh, with the optimal hemodynamic condition may benefit uh, from a slight reduction of the hydration status when pulmonary exchanges are extremely compromised. But this is a, a, a marginal percent of patients because in general, these patients do not have uh, a typical conditions of uh, pulmonary exchanges impaired due to overhydration state, something like similar, what we call pseudo ARDS. These patients have entire areas of the lungs that are compromised and not because of fluid overload. So absolutely, yes, we need to 
accurately monitor the the, the fluid the, the fluid balance, avoiding unnecessary uh, forced diuresis and uh, and decreasing the 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 <clears throat> hydration status of these patients. Even more in light of the possibility that in some cases there is a myocardial dysfunction, and this may lead to uncontrollable hypotension or uh, arterial underfilling or uh, decrease in venous return and uh, cardiac output, and therefore uh, leading to decrease in organ perfusion pressure. You had mentioned that up to 20% of patients that are admitted to the ICU with COVID-19 might require renal replacement therapy. So I thought that way we could uh, talk a little bit about uh, renal replacement therapy in COVID and maybe start by indications for renal replacement therapy in COVID-19. Yeah, um, interestingly enough, in many of the patients, the main indication was oliguria. Uh, I think that these patients uh, did not uh, present with a very high hypercatabolic state uh, or hyperkalemia and so on. So uh, probably fluid management was one of the most important uh, indications. Some of these patients, however, have uh, developed uh, superimposed septic syndromes or have superimposed rhabdomyolysis, and they may uh, require renal replacement therapy uh, due to oliguria secondary to these conditions. In these cases, however, we have uh, uh, at the end uh, tried to treat the patient a little bit uh, uh, in the early stages uh, knowing that uh, it, it was probably helpful to um, uh, restore a, a, a certain level of homeostasis in terms of electrolytes, acid base, and also uh, uh, uremic uh, toxin removal. And I was going to ask you about timing, which I know timing of RRT in critically ill patients is still a topic that has been much debated in the in the field of renal critical care. But clearly, I mean, what you're what you're sharing with us is that in these COVID-19 patients, you you would rather initiate RRT earlier than later, considering everything that you mentioned. Yeah, well, we are early starters in general. The reason for this is that we do not consider. Uh, uh, RRT as a major risk or hazard for the patient. So we prefer to start earlier and in case interrupt if no need uh, uh, shows uh, later on. Um, it is true, however, that these patients uh, need a placement of a catheter and this catheter uh, has to be a specific catheter because uh, since there is this hypercoagulable state, we want to have extracorporeal blood flow as high as possible in the range of 200 to 150 milliliters per minute. In some cases, uh, uh, these treatments are combined with ECMO, but in general, we prefer in any case to use a separate vascular access so the patient requires a dialysis catheter access. This is very important uh, in terms of placement and also in terms of uh, anchoring the, the catheter. Most of them are in the uh, jugular vein because uh, this patient may require prone positioning. And proning the patient uh, represents a maneuver that may actually displace the catheter. That's why in terms of modality of renal replacement therapy, we took two decisions. One, to use uh, uh, CVVHD instead of CVVH in order to reduce filtration fraction inside the filter and reducing uh, in this way the risk for emo concentration inside the filter and clotting. Second, uh, we used in some cases uh, a prolonged intermittent renal replacement therapy, like 12 hours over 24 hours, in order to leave the patient free of uh, the circuit from the circuit uh, for 12 hours, uh, enabling the team to prone position the patient and and so on. And I think that just two things I want to re-emphasize, which I think have tremendous. Um, 
a practical applicability. One is, I mean, the selection of the site, like you said, the, the right internal jugular with, with good securement seems to be the, the way to go in these patients for many reasons, one of which is that a lot of these patients end up being proning, and that is a good access to have in terms of if you have to prone the patient, which is something that I think uh, you have mentioned in the Lancet article as well, and we'll, we'll link those in the, in the show notes. And the second thing that you've also mentioned, uh, Claudio, was that in those patients who we know is a small percent, but they have occurred, that end up requiring ECMO, you can run CVVH through the ECMO circuit, but it seems that because of the flows that are required, if, if possible, it's preferable to have an independent dialysis catheter for those patients. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, this also has an impact on anticoagulation. Uh, we used uh, both uh, uh, unfractionated uh, heparin, which is our uh, standard of care. And, but in these patients, uh, we ended up sometimes delivering uh, dosage as high as 20 units per kilogram per hour as compared to 8 to 10 that we use normally in uh, in CRRT or we use the regional citrate anticoagulation which uh, allowed us uh, to uh, prolong filter life. In any case you have to consider the logistics and uh, the less uh, um, changes or uh, modifications or alarm solving uh, uh, actions that you have in the system, uh, the less you stress uh, the nurse team, which is already overloaded uh, uh, and it is uh, operating under an uh, uncomfortable situation with masks uh, and shields and, and so on. In Quick terms question. of... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. In turn, no, I wanted to say that this uh, allows you to make sure that you effectively deliver what you prescribe. We normally prescribe the, a dose in the range of 30 milliliters per kilogram per hour, and uh, we find that this is uh, uh, putting us on a safe uh, situation when we even have a little bit of downtime. Of course, if you do uh, prolong the intermittent renal replacement therapy, you want to aim for a little bit higher uh, dose uh, for instantaneous clearance because uh, you know that uh, you're only operating for 12 hours. Uh, it is, however, important uh, that you schedule specific monitoring of uh, uh, treatment delivery so that you make sure that you're not under dialysing the patient. Absolutely. And I think that you mentioned the importance of anticoagulation, which obviously goes beyond just uh, patients on renal replacement therapy with COVID-19. It's been a, a topic of great interest. But I have a specific question. So you would use low molecular weight heparin, unfractionated heparin, all at systemic doses. When you used um, a regional citrate anticoagulation, does that produce any systemic uh, uh, anticoagulation or only at the level of the cartridge? Normally, this uh, operates only a, leave, a level of the cartridge. The very same term regional means uh, that this is the aiming. Um, in general, also unfractionated heparin should, should tend to uh, create anticoagulation inside the filter with minimal systemic effects. But this patient may actually require systemic effects. So, in some patients, uh, the use of heparin was uh, exceedingly high compared to the standard. For regional uh, citrate anticoagulation, I think we only took care in this case of the circuit and we left to the intensivist the possibility to decide whether other forms of anticoagulation should be delivered to the patient. Yeah, and I think it's an important point because, like you said, it's, it's, its goal is to preserve the cartridge and avoid clotting of the cartridge, but these patients in many cases, based on the decision of the team and, and other factors, might require systemic anticoagulation on top of that, which I think is something that we're still learning, but has become very important in a lot of these patients. Mm -hmm. Are there any other uh, delivery or uh, practical aspects that you have found interesting as it relates specifically to COVID-19? Well, the interesting, the, the interesting thing is that in a few days, uh, uh, in blood purification should come out uh, an a expert recommendation paper where we try to 
summarize all possible recommendations for the use of uh, blood purification techniques in uh, in COVID-19 patients. So follow the the um, blood purification journal. It should come out online very very soon. Uh, I'm talking about days, and I think this will be a very important. Uh, 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 tool on the on the uh, pocket of the people who operate at the bedside, especially because this is a cooperative work of more than 20 experts around the world. So I think it would be extremely helpful. Excellent. And uh, and and as we close on the COVID-19 topic, one thing that you did mention that I think is is positive with all the negative news that people have been sharing through the last several months, is that a lot of the patients with COVID-19 who survive and require renal replacement therapy seem to have renal recovery. Can you comment a little bit more on that, Dr. Ronco? Well, the, the, some of these patients uh, were still monitoring to see if there are any further effects. It seems not. It seems that they recover kidney function, but uh, we are planning maybe to take uh, some time to uh, maybe make a, a control at three or six months uh, to make sure that the recovery is effective. Uh, in general, however, we have seen a high percent of uh, renal recovery after AKI. Excellent. So I want to be very respectful of your time, Claudio, but I would like to, to close uh, the podcast with some questions that are unrelated to AKI that really seek to tap into the wisdom of our guests. Would that be okay? Oh, absolutely. So the first question relates to books, and I was wondering, are there books uh, or book that have influenced you the most or that you have gifted most often to others? Uh, well, talking about what book I have gifted most to the others, I must say it is my book, Carpe Diem. Uh, Carpe Diem was a book that I wrote describing the story of a baby, the story of a machine that we have developed, you know, Carpe Diem stays for cardiorenal pediatric dialysis emergency machine. And it's a little bit the story of my life. I think that this book uh, has influenced my life because it has been translated in Chinese, English, uh, Spanish, and you can find it on Amazon. And uh, I suggest you really to read this paper, because this book, because it's uh, somehow interesting. Uh, it's also uh, a little bit entertaining and you will definitely know about me a little bit more. So we'll definitely link that in, in the show notes. And I think that it's always interesting I mean, for me to find out new things to read. So that sounds like a very interesting, interesting read. Are there any I'll other books? You, that, go ahead. I will send you the cover. I will send you the cover. But it's Carpe Diem, one single word. Okay, perfect. Uh, any other books you want to mention, Claudio? Well, one book is important is uh, the book uh, from Homer Smith, uh, 1956, uh, From Fish to Philosopher. Remember that the kidneys allow us to be what we are, and we have to preserve the kidneys to make sure that we can keep going with our life. I, I have to say that you are the second person on the podcast who recommends From Fish to Philosopher, and both were nephrologists. <laughs> So it's a must. We will put that there. The second question uh, relates to something that you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe or at least don't act like they believe it's true. Well, I uh, honestly uh, believe that uh, medicine is a humanistic uh, uh, discipline, is not a mathematical discipline. Uh, this has a lot to do with the fact that, that uh, one thing is to cure the patient, another thing is to take care of the patient. And I think that uh, we have too many uh, computer-aided programs, we have too many technologies, and sometimes uh, we tend to forget uh, the human touch of the physician. Remember, uh, the only job considered a profession was the one of the doctor because profession means profide from latin which means it comes from faith 
and it, it seems to be a job that is more a mission than a job. And therefore, I think we should take care of patients in a kind of holistic way, not just because of kidney dysfunction, because of high cytokines or other things especially in the area of COVID-19 when uh, patients were isolated from their uh, dears and uh, from uh, relatives. Uh, they relied on our eyes, on our human touch, and I think this was of great help for them. And I think it's a very important point, and like you said, I think has been uh, highlighted uh, exponentially with COVID-19. You could almost imagine if you were to have a utopic nightmare uh, many, many decades ago, you might wake up to being an ICU patient with COVID-19, where everybody around you is either a machine or surrounded by masks, uh, helmets, gowns, and really there's almost no personal uh, connection. So I think it's something that's very important for us to, to remember at the bedside. And, yeah. and the last question, Claudio, is what would you want every intensivist listening to this podcast to know? It could be a quote or a fact to close the, the podcast. Well, my message could be, which has been more or less the mission of my life, uh, uh, the patient with the critical illness is a complicated uh, uh, patient. He may need uh, uh, really a cooperative effort. So if we consider our uh, team of doctors like an orchestra uh, to play a symphony, you need an orchestra and a symphony is very complex now to play a melody you need just only one instrument so we can only play one instrument at a time but we must be on the same key so i think that uh, disciplines that are crossing and uh, cross fertilizing our knowledge such as critical care nephrology probably are the most important achievement that we have uh, uh, made in recent years. Cooperation, sharing ignorance, and multiplying knowledge is a key for success. And I think that's a perfect place uh, to stop. Uh, Claudio, I want to thank you so much for your time and being so generous with your expertise. I look forward to seeing you again in person soon, but also hopefully having you back on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound critical care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.